Welcome to In the Deep. I'm your host, Katherine Ingram. The following was recorded from a Zoom session of Dharma Dialogues on November 7th, 2021. It's called, We Like Being, Most of the Time. I invite you to join us for any of the upcoming Zoom sessions held on the first weekend of each month at two different time slots. we've been talking about for quite some time, and as it is no mystery to any of us, we don't have a lot of control over the events of the world. We're living in times of uh, incredible uncertainty and just not really being able to fully make any kind of plans or do the kinds of things that we used to do and assume that we could continue to do that that's off the table and there's a sense i think i spoke about it last night there's a sense of because we're used to that because we've been so privileged it's quite a an adjustment for us for for most of us in ways that maybe aren't as huge an adjustment for people who never expected that they were living with very much control about the events of the world people who lived or still live in more village circumstances where they they don't get around very far from where they are that's just one kind of uncertainty that we're living with we're living with all kinds of others uncertainties social and political and economic and environmental and it's a lot of stress frankly so the question is is there some way that we can adjust our perception so that we might find some sanctuary in the midst of this chaos is there sanctuary in the chaos and as you might suspect and as you all know actually really the only sanctuary is in what you're doing with your awareness that's the only sanctuary you can count on we try to find other kinds and, and, and well and good, I do. I try to find other kinds of sanctuary. I try to hobble together some little place on this planet that I can rest and feel at ease and feel safe, you know? But I'm finding it's pretty hard to do that. And I come back to the Dharma sanctuary where it's actually easy <laughs> to do that, where you adjust the attention, you move your attention. And that's just very, very simple. It's a toggle switch, really, whereby you find yourself, you know, the energy is rising of, you know, oh my God, what if that happened? And what are they going to do that next? And, you know, you read the news, it's all bad. Of course, they don't tell us the good news, by the way. That doesn't make the news. They don't tell us about the tender mercies that go on in the billions every day the kindnesses, the strangers, helping strangers. And maybe uh, some of you have followed the story here in Australia. A little four-year-old was taken from her family's tent. They were camping somewhere in the wilds of, the, I think, the Northern Territories uh, area. And 
um, she was taken in the night and she was missing for 18 days. And of course the whole nation was watching. And then she was found, a man had kidnapped her and um, he's, in, he's in custody. It's unclear what might've happened. The guy was a doll fetishist. So maybe he just treated her like a little doll. Hopefully that's all that happened. But in any case, the whole country, first of all, the whole country was weeping. Everybody was so scared for this one child. She's not the only child in the world who was missing, but somehow it grabbed our hearts. And it was amazing to see the cops, the, the cops and the detectives crying in relief when they had her in their arms. And they had worked very hard. It was really like finding a needle in a haystack. There is so much love and kindness that floats in the world. And we, we really don't hear about it as much as we hear the bad news. But let's just acknowledge that we do hear the bad news and it's, it's, it's bad. So I keep coming back to, I do look for these tender mercies. I do celebrate them when I see them. And I really suggest that you do that as well, that when you see goodness and you see kindness, whether in others or even in yourself or anyone around you, really let yourself celebrate, really let yourself acknowledge it, have gratitude. And also, Use the attention, use your ability to move your attention around. So when you notice you're just immersed in the darkness and it comes in, it's got, you know, with the consistency of a metronome, it's coming in. But when you notice it, ask yourself the simple question, do I have to be paying attention to this right now? Are you out in the water and someone has called shark? then you have to pay attention right now. <laughs> but most of the time, it's not that a shark is coming at you in the moment. Most of the time, not, or some equivalent. So sometimes you can ask yourself that question, do I have to be paying attention to this right now? And the answer often can be no. And then you can move the attention to something else, something very immediate that you can be happy about, something you'd be grateful for, some reflection about the love in your life, some awareness of the lovely circumstance in which you find yourself sitting. I see all of us seem to be in rooms. That's a big win on the planet. We are in rooms. Many of us are in our own homes, whether it's rented or, or you own it, so-called own it. <laughs> you get to pay, pay a lot of money to live in it. <laughs> You know, whatever it is, that's a great thing. You're in your own place. Most of you, I'd say all of us, have food. You wouldn't have spent $10 on a Zoom call if you didn't have food. We have food. We have shelter. We have relative safety. The basics are covered. So then we can move into, like I said, these reflections, these uh, inspirations that lift your heart, lift your spirit, or the simple delight in being. Turns out, despite all our complaining, we like to be. We like being. You know, we wanna tweak it. <laughs> we wanna have a few fixes here and there, but 
but for the most part, we prefer being. It, it's a, a very quick experiment whenever uh, the threat to being comes along, you get a quick lesson in how much you prefer being. Now, there may be times, there may be moments, definitely, when you'd rather not be any longer. My mother is turning 91 tomorrow. She's lost most of her eyesight now, blind in one eye and partially blind in the other. She's lost much of her hearing. They've been locked down in Florida, even though she's able to go out, but she just doesn't. And she's ready to go, and I believe her. What's happened for her is that the line has crossed over to life being more of a challenge, more difficult, less joy and pleasure, less experiences that make life worth living. So yes, there can come a point. If you're in terrible pain, you're in some horrible, terrible terminal illness, uh, you're very, very old and you see that life is behind you, not in front of you. Uh, that things are going to get even harder than they already are. All of those are reasons to say, okay, being's not really worth it at this point. But until that point, often we miss as we go how wonderful it is to be alive. That's simple truth. We, we miss it a lot of the time. We're thinking about other things. We're thinking about future, we're thinking about just, we're in some kind of hallucination. You can redirect your attention. And the more you redirect your attention, the more habitual that becomes. You more easily redirect the attention. When you notice a kind of flutteriness and nervousness, a feeling of despair, a feeling of condemnation, about the ignorance that you're witnessing and the suffering that ensues from it. Very frustrating. I understand, I feel it too. But how much do we need to indulge it? Where does that go? Where does it lead? Just to more despair. Your use of your attention in any moment is conditioning the experience that you're having in that moment. What you're doing with your attention is giving you your experience of the moment. You know, my husband died five years ago and it, it was a level of grief I couldn't have imagined. Mm -hmm. that kind of suffering. I, I couldn't, nobody could have ever been able, not the greatest novel on earth. Right. Felt and, and empathized with could have in, and there's that kind of grief that I felt. And I, I think I felt it ever since I was a child, I had an understanding for what was happening. Mm -hmm. Kind of visionary, I guess, you know, not you know but I don't know how else to say it and so then as it's uh, materializing or getting played out and then there's an understanding for that undercurrent and now conscious grief 
Yes. Is yes. Part yes. Of my life and part of the feeling nature. I don't feel it all the time, just like grief for a loved one. You don't feel it all the time, but sure. But it's there. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I too had a sense, except from the time I was very young, it drove me to the Dharma. And when I when I heard uh, um, my first my first portal into the Dharma was through Buddhist practice and through specifically mindfulness practice starting in 1974. And when I first heard the Four Noble Truths, I thought, sign me up because the first noble truth, the truth of suffering, yeah. you know, the truth of unsatisfactoriness. It, the truth of the impossibility of having permanent happiness in an in impermanent reality, all of that, I just thought, yeah, they nailed it. I, it was what I had always felt, always intuitively, that the, the, the suffering of this reality was immense. Yeah. And mostly, you, mostly people are dancing around it and kind of oblivious until something whacks them on the side of the head and, you know, or they have a major loss or illness or something, you know, it's people are like in the old Popeye uh, cartoons, like sweet pea, you know, just kind of la 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 going along oblivious. And they wouldn't rip that away from them either. But for me, I wasn't built that way. And so for me hearing those teachings, was like a life raft in a stormy sea. And it has been part of my understanding ever since. Now, I have had to, I hesitate to use the word work, but I have had to investigate very deeply for decades to overcome that being my primary view, to overcome just seeing this samsaric, bleak landscape and realize just what I'm saying, find the jewels, find the joys, know that there's plenty of love and mercy out there. I, I, I know that in my own life. I, I have a much more of a preponderance of love in my life than I do of hate and people behaving badly and all of that, you know. I loved that scene in the movie Love Actually. At the opening of the movie, you see all these people, I can't remember it exactly, it's been years since I saw that film, but you see people, it looks like it's actually filmed at airports. Relatives are getting off the plane and relatives are waiting for them um, and they're hugging. You can see they haven't seen each other in a long time at the airport and, and you know, they're, they're greeting each other. And there's just so much love. And, and, and they also said that the messages that people left in the, in the planes that went down in 9-11, they were all love messages. People left love messages on, on their loved ones answering machines, you know, that it, it turns out to be the bottom, bottom line. So sometimes in the midst of my, the way that I used to hold the world, I, there was a, there was an imbalance in seeing the kind of horrifying nature of it and not enough giving credence to the beauty and that's that's been a lifelong adjustment for me and I still work with it but I have sort of trained just by habit I I, I know that there can come a point where because I tend to anxiety and now I, I'm very 
quickly noticing when anxiety arises, and this has been the case for a long time, I know that I have to adjust the view. I have to change the viewfinder, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and not to go into denial about anything. I, I don't even, I I'm incapable of doing that. I would if I could actually, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I have to adjust the, the viewfinder to say, okay, hang on. Is this the whole picture? And I've come all the way to some kind of full circle that is basically saying, whatever happens, this is the evolutionary play. Right. Right. And we got to be here for it. We actually got to be here for certainly one of the most intense times of history, all things considered, not just the pandemic or anything like that, just any one of the things that are going on and that we can know about all these things. Never, ever has that been the case that we're we're in a flood of information about our moment here. And it's so intense on all levels. Yeah. This happened to be the lifetime slot that we got. <laughs> you know, go figure. And there's a certain wow to that. Yeah. I mean, I, f- I have said, I've, I think I've never felt more awake. Yeah. And I've been working on this awake thing for years and years. <laughs> but just circumstances have made it all very, very highlighted. Did I understand you in the essay that you talked about the inevitability of of technological society, you know, the development of society becoming more and more technological? Well, let me jump in. I talked about the great filter theory that astrophysicists have. It wasn't my theory. Their their theory, and it is somewhat comforting, is that and this is the astrophysicist, a lot of them subscribe to this theory. They call it the great filter theory. They're not saying it's so, but they think it's possible that the reason we actually have not had contact made with us from any other life forms, given the crazy odds of there being life forms out there that could have been developing technologically, Their theory is that they would have wiped themselves out. When you come to a certain level of technological development, it turns in on itself. That's their theory. Uh, One guy I heard say, even if, let's say they were smart enough to understand, let's not go down the nuclear road. They, they, They managed to discover it, but they said, no, that's too dangerous. Let's not do that. But the point is that any kind of energy that you're creating, any kind of development and and overpopulation, because as you get more and more technological, you're you're able to host more creatures of your type, right? And if you're carbon-based life form and you're reliant on sun energy and all of that, their position is that whatever you're doing, it's throwing heat on the planet. It's throwing heat back on your planet and that it will become unsustainable at some point. Um, That's that theory. Now, I had it in the section that I had in there because I I feel that a very calming way to view this is to see this. This is just an evolutionary process. And to, to drive ourselves crazy by saying, well, what if we had done this? And what if we not 
developed agriculture and what if we let the women be in charge and on and on and on all the what ifs and the if onlys and here's the here's the wrong turn we took in history and otherwise that's just a fool's errand it's it didn't happen that way it happened exactly the way it did and every step of the way was conditioning the next step and most of the time all of our productions were to try to make ourselves more comfortable and better fed. We were trying to get, you know, one of my friends, James Kunstler, he always says, well, it just seemed a good idea at the time. I think it is who are in the position of privilege and living like kings and queens. Who wants to give up? The goodies. Yeah. To, then that's suffering for everyone who said, you know, it'd be turning that's- towards and it doesn't make sense. That is exactly right. Yeah, yeah. The problem is, though, they're part of our gang, too. Yeah. It's a, I always say it's a species problem, if, if you want to call it a problem. It's the species. Or I now would prefer to say it's a species feature. That's what we do. And some of the, the, the big winners, they get to have lots and lots more, and they don't care how much it costs to the others, and so on. And again, when you see it, when you pull the lens out of far enough, It's not even that you need forgiveness for them. You just see it as the what's so. You don't want to participate in it like they do yourself, but you see that that's the what's so, and and it's been so in history. It's just that they didn't have the technology to, to make the mess that the new ones do. But you see what people used to do. I mean, every time I've been in Rome, I, I, I only went to the Colosseum once, but I avoided it. I avoided it year after year. One time I was even standing in the line with a friend of mine, waiting to go into the Colosseum. And the energy of the place was so overwhelming to me and and to her independently. I looked at her at one point after I'd been waiting for a long time. And I said, do you want to just go? And she said, yes. But eventually I did go because a group of people I was with wanted to go and I was being a good sport. And it is rather a breathtaking historical place. But when you think about what went on there for sport, to entertain the masses, to entertain not just the the elite, but all the people, they loved seeing this stuff. That was what they were into. You you realize it's a species feature. The bad guys of history, bad guys meaning people who cause suffering and, and sometimes for sport and for their own fun, that's not new. And so, again, I like to have this evolutionary perspective. It gives me some wiggle room around the deep sense of blame that can erupt and that many people feel toward those who are uh, seemingly completely uncaring uh, about the dis- destruction. Yeah, and I, like I said, it, it bypasses even forgiveness. So what I wanted to talk about, just because I'm I'm on this edge, there's a local issue here, a forest in California, Jackson Forest, that um, is owned by California and is being logged, and there's redwoods. And so we've been involved with a group of people trying to stop the logging. Uh, which is a good thing to do local we could we've had some success but the thing for me is uh there's a lot of 
oh, those horrible loggers. And, you know, there's a lot of, as there always is, and a lot of anxiety getting up at dawn and going out and doing blockades. And well, one thing I did that I feel really that it was a sustainable thing is I just got together with friends and we're doing a sitting group out in the forest just for a half hour, silent sitting. And I feel really, that feels really good. But I want to do something. Why not? Why? It's a great thing to try to protect these redwoods that sequester so much carbon. Yeah. I don't want to lose my peace. I, 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 that's the most important thing to me. Yes. So just like feeling out that edge. Yes. I really appreciate that dilemma, actually, because it is one thing to say, as W.S. Merwin did the quote, on the last day of the world, I would want to plant a tree. It's one thing to have that kind of fortitude where win or lose, I'm going to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. But it's very hard when there is a sense that you're losing ground, literally, and that your, your efforts will be so-called in vain with the issue at hand. That's very hard. It's very hard to keep going. And I have a particular kind of admiration for the heroes of our world who are able to keep going in the face of not winning, in, in the face of the powers that be, just brushing them aside. And yet, you're absolutely right, it's the thing to do. So it's a, it's a dilemma that one lives with. Mm. And of course, the more you can shift into, I, I'm only doing it because it's the right thing to do, mm. not because we can necessarily prevail. Mm. You only have, that's the one motivation, it's the all you need. I'm doing it because it's the right thing to do. And that's the choice a lot of people have made in history and are making at this very moment on this earth, that in, in the face of tremendous odds against, they are still standing up. And so many of those types of people have have spoken about this and said, no matter what it costs, even if it costs my life, right? The sense that your life wouldn't be worth living if you didn't do it. So it's that you're you're doubling down on the side of the angels. And these actions, they have their own beautiful effects. Not that they may save whatever one is trying to save, the forest, but they might have a knock-on effect in other ways, even just in the simple feeling of community and, mm. and local camaraderie. Mm. And there's something about a shared mission like that that you have with people that bonds you in a very different way than sort of normal social yeah. hanging out. Do you know what I mean? Like you might, you might have a, a gang that you hang out with, that you have fun with, or that you share opinions with or so on. But when you're actually in an action like that, that has, frankly, righteousness as, it, as its core component, and those who are stepping up to that, that takes a certain type of character. And that, even if you have nothing much else in common with any of those people, that particular thing to have in common is so huge. I'm starting to feel in my situation, in my life, that's starting to trump a lot of other things for me. 
-hmm. just that kind of brave, heroic character. Mm -hmm. So another part of it is that saving that by, by helping people and being supportive in that, one could argue that whether or not you save the trees and the forest, you're saving something also very, very precious in this world. Mm. Um, and you're doing it together as a, as a group in support of each other in an osmosis of strength. Mm -hmm. Nice. Thank you. That's very inspiring. <laughs> well, I've seen it a lot, actually, as you to no doubt, no. I, I used to, as a journalist, I was I was very immersed in being around people for whom that was their life's work, and many times against terrible, terrible odds. The Tibetans are a case in point. You could say they lost their country, and they lost. They became. They were so oppressed by the Chinese. The Chinese won in that regard, but it. It spread the Tibetans, who had been this isolated kingdom, out into the world. It got their, it not only got their story out, it got their culture out far and wide, such that so many people have adapted their culture as their spiritual path and as their cause, even people who are not into Tibetan Buddhism as a practice, but who are very much into the Tibetans as a cause and as a culture. And so their culture actually blew out into the whole world and and it hasn't thrown a lovely light on china frankly <laughs> you know? so um, they did stomp them in their in their country but in terms of world opinion the, the tibetans won on that one you know there are very various ways to look at things often but the point also being that the bravery and the connection that one feels when one is in support in these kinds of causes where in your heart of hearts, you know what the right thing is. It does attract the angels. Thank you. You're welcome. Hello, Catherine. Hello. You started talking about suffering and I immediately thought of these three books that I've just finished. And I'd been aware of Homeboy Industries for some time in Los Angeles because I was doing a yoga practice next to a lovely woman who was teaching down um, at Homeboy. So Father Greg Boyle, a Jesuit priest, decided that he would start programs in Los Angeles for rehabilitation for young people that were just out of prison and parts of gangs. So if you don't know about homeboy industries, it's something to really know about. But I was given a book recently by this priest, and I was so impressed I couldn't put it down. And talk about suffering. He gives case histories. But but with such compassion and wisdom and caring. I mean, you hear terrible stories, but if one person was able to be helped and get a job and be re rehabilitated, shown love and respect, 
I literally couldn't put down the last book. Yeah. I wanted to share how I've been very moved by that. Some of the words he, he uses talking to these people, and he has a great staff. He's talking about mercy, and of course we know forgiveness, but he talks about tenderness and how to tenderize. And using that new word, I felt was so lovely. So recently I've been seeing that I'm willing to talk about being tender. We know kindness, yeah, but to be tender and to show mercy and compassion and, and to listen, to listen and to look. Yes, indeed, yes. Well, those are the the healing qualities for, for everybody. And yeah, it's very, very touching. Yeah. And I think there's a, you know, there's going to be a rise of of all of that. Um, I hear that the homelessness in Los Angeles is just unprecedented at this point. But some good news, I live in Santa Monica next to Brentwood, and they were, I don't know, maybe a hundred tents in this very nice neighborhood of homeless, and they just recently were moved into the VA in West Los Angeles. I know that VA very well. I used to live in Brentwood. That's a beautiful place. They've certainly up-leveled in that regard with gorgeous grounds. I used to walk there. I used to go for walks on the... On yes. The, on you the, could bicycle yeah. through there and get into Westwood and go to the movies. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I resonate with everything that's been said in one way or another. I want to thank you once again, as always, for helping me learn how to shift my attention from the dark places that it dwelled for most of my life into the places of joy and beauty and the practice of gratitude and bringing suffering down to a very small level. I have been more alone than usual in the past month more alone even than in COVID time, more solitary, because I've been hospice caring for my dog, who was 14 almost, and my true heart's companion in this journey of life, more than anyone has ever been of any species, and was trying to let him go on his own, thinking a lot of mishmash spiritual and ethical stuff and, you know, wanting him to go on his own and it was going well and it was this slow thing. And during the last few weeks, there was so much love and my heart opened, cracked more and more open every day as his abilities declined and my responsibilities, the physical things I had to do to care for him became a full-time occupation. And I threw out, the love was deepening, you know, the trust was deepening from what was already profound Mm -hmm. and the capacity for my own heart for surrender to service to another sentient being of great value continued. And Um, Thursday night, in the middle of the night, there was a sudden, horrible Mm. turn of immense suffering Mm -hmm. on his part and a horrible night. And I was 
with him the whole time. We were connected the whole time. And in the morning, I knew that I had to have him euthanized, which was not what I wanted, but what the world presented. And I was grateful for my capacity to, you know, recognize and turn on a dime and make that happen. Did you have someone come to the house? I couldn't find someone to come to the house. And so, which was what I hoped and I looked for. So I knew where I had to go is about 25 minutes away. Mm-hmm. I had remembered a couple of friends who said, if you ever need to take him to the vet, we have a van that's low and it'll be easy to get him in. Mm-hmm. And another friend had ch- checked with me like at 6.30 saying, hey, I didn't see your blog post. Is everything okay? And I was like, no. She's like, can I come? So two friends came. The couple with the van came. We convened at my house. Four of us lifted the blanket and carried him out to the van. Mm-hmm. And the two, frankly, little old ladies in their 60s, now like me, and no aspersions, I'm saying that tongue in cheek, but... Um, they stayed at my house with shovels and began to deepen the grave, which was in a hole that he had been digging for years under his favorite tree. And And the couple with the van drove me in absolute silence all the way to the vet, handled getting the vet out. I lay with my dog in the back of the van and whispered the Amitabha mantra into his ear, the whole time that this was happening. And I had some mandala dust that I put on his forehead mm. at the time that he was euthanized. And my friends drove me home in absolute silence. And I sobbed the whole way home. And half I would stop sobbing. And then I would look into the front seat and see my friends. and recognize the profound kindness that they were doing for me. And I would start sobbing all over again. So I was alternating between sobbing for the kindness that had been shown to me and my other friends back home. At the point we were on the way to the vet, Stellar had not even lifted his head the whole time. And we crossed over the North Fork River Mm-hmm. where right after the river, there's a turn to a place that we used to park and go run. Oh, we crossed God. over the river and he lifted his head. Oh, he knew right where he was. And from then he would, he would lay his head back down and then he would lift it and he would put his head, his chin on the console mm-hmm. like he would on any other happy trip. Wow. And then he, and Carol would pet him and then he would put his head down and I would hold him. So So it was just, you know, it was one of those transformative things. So we get home and my friends that dug the grave said, do you want to come look at it? I'm like, yeah, I'll make sure it's big enough. So I came and I, I looked at the grave and I burst into tears again at the kindness Mm -hmm. that these two women had shown me, not any of us in the best physical shape. They had dug a huge hole. And one of them said, well, I climbed in to make sure it was big enough. Mm. And I, I was so flattened by the kindness that others were showing me that yeah. cracked my heart open even bigger. 
it was just amazing to be the recipient of such profound love and kindness and the support that others have shown me since hearing, you know, yeah, has made. At, at, a, at a time of such intense emotion and need of help, you know, there it was, there was grace in that. And there's also something kind of lovely about maybe your dog had a little bit of excitement there thinking, oh, maybe we're going to that place we love. And yeah. so that in the last moments uh, of his life, he had a little all was well, or at least a little brightness of, of things that he had known. And certainly his sense of smell would have been telling him those things. But mm. you know, that's an amazing story, really, really amazing. I feel the love in it all the way through for you and your dog with each other and the incredible trust he must have felt that he was in good hands and and by the way you did the right thing of course i hope someone will put me out of my misery frankly <laughs> i don't want to have to go all the way to the end of the miserable suffering i'm all for euthanasia and i mean for people as well as any any other creature when the suffering is intense yeah right of course that's the compassionate act yeah. You know, it's, it's amazing to me that people are willing to do that for their animals, but have some kind of religious taboo about thinking that we could do it for our own human loved ones who are often in extreme misery at the end. Terrible, terrible suffering. Right. So anyway, you, you, that was a, a, an act of love, a final act of love. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. One of, thank my you friends, for... one of my friends is a veterinarian here, and he has had to be the one euthanizing a lot of animals, you know. And he said often people will, when their animal is very, very ill, they'll say to him, how, when, when do you think we should do this? Right? When should we make that change? And he always answers, you will know. Yeah. Yeah. This has been In the Deep. You can find the entire list of In the Deep podcasts at katherineingram.com, where you can also book a private phone session and view upcoming events, such as our monthly Zoom sessions. I want to deeply thank our donors for your support and encourage our other regular listeners to consider making either a one-time or a recurring donation. We would also be grateful for a review on Apple Podcasts or on whatever platform you're listening. Till next time. <laughs>